the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up in the, to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Darla will attest to the fact that during most of our 37 years of marriage, 37 and a half years of marriage, I have been unable to enjoy courtroom dramas, whether they be in the movies or on TV. You see, I practiced law for 35 years, and my practice was one that I tried cases, and I tried over 200 cases to a jury verdict. Now, on average, those cases lasted a week and a half, so you can do the math. I spent a lot of time in courtrooms, so I know what happens in a courtroom. I know what doesn't happen in a courtroom. I know what judges will and will not allow. And that's the rub, you see, because almost invariably, these dramas, whether they're on TV or movies, when they get to the courtroom scene, well, it bears absolutely no resemblance to what really happens in a courtroom. And so I would sit on my couch or I would sit in a, in a chair in the theater and quietly seethe as I watched what was going on and think to myself, there's no way a judge would allow that. That could never happen in a courtroom. But finally, I decided that I needed to make my peace with these, this genre of movies and TVs. And it struck me that if I was able to engage in a willing suspension of disbelief and enjoy, say, Spider-Man the movie, or Batman, or even Deadpool, why couldn't I engage in a willing suspension of disbelief for the, for the courtroom dramas? And so I began to take that attitude, and I've, last few years I've actually been able to enjoy watching those, those courtroom scenes. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing for you. It's a good thing for you because today, from Micah, we read a courtroom drama. This is what Micah is presenting to us. And much like the movies and the TV shows, what Micah presents is absolutely nothing like what happens in a real courtroom. So I want all of us to uh, suspend our, or willingly suspend our disbelief as we read through what Micah has to say, because, folks, it's important stuff. <clears throat> now, first of all, 
to, to fully appreciate today's lesson, we need to understand the context. Micah was one of the latter prophets. Micah, Micah's career as a prophet, if you will, spanned from 725 to 700 B.C. <clears throat> this was a particularly tumultuous time in the Hebrew nation. There were several reasons for that. The first is they were under constant pressure from the massive, powerful Assyrian Empire to the north and east. So much so that in 721, the Assyrians attacked, overran, and literally obliterated the northern kingdom of the Hebrew nation. Now remember, there were two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is where Jerusalem is, and also, by the way, Micah's hometown. Meanwhile, during all this time, the southern kingdom was not, was not immune to this pressure, and pretty soon they became essentially a vassal state to the Assyrian Empire. And so during all of this time, the, the Hebrews were living under the thumb of the Assyrians. But there, were also, there was also friction, there was tension within the nation itself. Those, uh, the, the, the leaders of the nation were not fulfilling their responsibility. Now remember, you and I live in a time and we're used to having a separation between church and state, but that's not the way it was in ancient times. In just about every society, including the Hebrew society, the, the church and the state were one. And so the religious leaders were also the political leaders, the national leaders. And, and during this time that Micah is prophesying, well, those, those priests and scribes were not fulfilling their responsibility. Rather than doing justice as they were called to do, they were dispensing their, their decisions based on who paid them enough money. In other words, in other words who was bribing them. Meanwhile, there was, a, there was a growing disparity in the wealth in the country, a wealth gap, as you, as you might call it. They were, there were the very rich, the merchants and the landowners who were making their money and growing increasingly wealthy on the backs of the peasants. And of course, as that wealth gap increased, tensions also increased and anger increased. Now, as Micah looked out over the situation for his Hebrew nation, he was really despondent. He saw that, that, that Israel had begun to fail to live up to its bargain, if you will, in, of the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that Moses forged with God on Mount Sinai. And so Micah comes up with this device. He comes up with a, a courtroom scene that, that will illustrate to the people how they have fallen away from God's grace, how they have turned their back on God, and hopefully get them to turn back to God. And so today we have Micah's courtroom. First, who are the players in this courtroom scene? Well, the plaintiff, the plaintiff, remember, is the person who brings the lawsuit. The plaintiff here today is God. The defendant, the one being sued, is Israel. Micah also plays a role. Micah is the prosecuting attorney, the plaintiff's attorney, representing God 
And the jury is made up of the mountains and the hills. So, knowing that, that um, what Micah paints is not really reality, let's all willingly suspend our disbelief and look at how this courtroom scene plays out. Now, something special for y'all, if you look in your bulletins and turn to the Old Testament reading from Micah, you see that uh, unusually we have the verses numbered because I'm going to go through them and I want you to be able to follow. That's right, we're channeling our inner Baptist today, folks. Gonna... <laughs> so our courtroom scene opens with the opening statement on behalf of the plaintiff, the opening statement on behalf of God. Micah is speaking to the mountains and the hills, the jury, and Micah reminds them that they are the very foundations of the earth. In other words, they are old and they are wise. And so they need to listen carefully to God's grievances against the Israel people. That's verses 1 and 2. Then we get to verses 3, 4, and 5. 3, 4, and 5 make up the testimony of the first witness. The first witness is none other than the plaintiff. The first witness is God. And this is where we really get away from what might actually happen in a courtroom. You see, in, a, in, a, in most courtrooms, in any courtroom, when the plaintiff takes the stand, what, usually, what we see is somebody who's angry, somebody who's looking for revenge, somebody who's looking to be paid for how they have been wrong. And so what you get in the plaintiff testimony is always a list of all the ways that the defendant has done them wrong. In this instance, you would expect, in other words, for God to talk about all the ways that Israel hasn't done what they promised to do or has done what they promised they wouldn't do. But that's not what we see here. Instead of talking about all of Israel's failings, God talks about what God has done for Israel, God's acts of love. And God begins by reminding Israel Remember way back when y'all were slaves in Egypt, I rescued you from slavery. And he takes them forward and finally ends with the time that the, the, uh, the Israel nation crossed over the river Jordan into the promised land and how God led them and protected them in all that endeavor. In other words, God is not speaking as somebody angry, looking at revenge. God's words in these three verses are more like the tone and the voice of, of a lover whose love has left them. A lover who wants nothing but reunion with the loved one, wants the loved one to return to them. And God speaks in loving terms. God, terms, God speaks in a way that invokes intimacy. Twice God says, Oh, my people which underscores the intimacy that God longs to have with the people of Israel. In the next two verses, 6 and 7, well, these are the verses that show the next witness testifying, and the next witness is the defendant, Israel. Now here, we kind of go back to what you would expect to see in a courtroom. When the defendant takes the witness stand in a courtroom... Basically, the defendant says, you've accused me of these things. The heck you say? I haven't done anything wrong. 
And that's what Israel says. Israel says, look, look, we have, uh, we have followed the letter of the law with respect to the ritual. We, we observe all of the ritual responsibilities that, that we owe. And then, like any good defendant, not being, not being satisfied with the defense, the defense goes on the offense. And that's what happens here. With some rather sarcastic comments, Israel says, What do you want from us, God? You want that we should sacrifice a thousand rams? You want we should give you miles and miles and miles of oil? And then the most sarcastic comment of all, you want that we should sacrifice our own children? Is that what you want? And all that serves only to shine a spotlight on the problem. You see, over time, Israel has begun to mistake faith with ritual. Over time, Israel has fallen into the trap of seeing faith as following ritual rather than being in relationship. Now, that's hugely important, so I'm going to repeat it. Over time, Israel has become blind to the fact that faith is not ritual. Faith is relationship with God. And then the last verse of our our courtroom scene today is the closing argument by the plaintiff. Micah rises once again to his feet and speaks to the jury and says, you know what God wants. God wants this. He wants you to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And then, inexplicably, again, something that would never happen in a courtroom, the case simply concludes. It's over. There is no closing argument by the defense. There are no comments by the judge. There's no verdict by the jury. The lawsuit is essentially discarded because at this point we realize there's no need for that. In bringing the lawsuit, God isn't looking for revenge. God isn't looking for payment. God simply wants Israel to turn back to God, to give God their love. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, you know, the Bible's got two gods. you got this Old Testament God, which is full of wrath and anger and vengeance. And then there's the New Testament God, which is a God of love. Well, I get how people can arrive at that conclusion based on some of the parts of the Old Testament. But if you look at the, the entirety of the Bible, that's simply a... That's simply a mistake. The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament, the one and the same God who is pure love. And if we want to continue with our our trial metaphor, if you will, today's reading from, from Micah is exhibit A, that the Old Testament God is a God of love. When we're told that all God wants is for us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God, you know what? That's, that's saying exactly, it's, it's the same thing that Jesus says 
in Matthew, when Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two law, these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. They're saying the same thing. What God wants from us is our love and nothing more, but also nothing less. God wants all of our love. Okay, what does this have to do with us today? Well, I think if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we are always in danger of falling into the same trap that the Hebrews fell into, mistaking ritual for faith. Now, by now, I've been here almost two years, and I hope you all know that there's no greater defender of our liturgy than me. I love the Episcopal liturgy. I love the beauty of it. I love the power of it. I love everything about it. But there is a shadow side to that liturgy. We can fall into the trap of thinking that the liturgy itself is the end. But it's not. It's a means to the end. Our liturgy is designed so that it, we, it draws us closer and closer to deeper and deeper into a, a relationship, an intimate relationship with God. That is what it's designed to do, and that's what God wants. Now, all of this to me becomes amazing when we think about who this God is that wants our intimate love. I wish our reading in Micah had gone further, because in the very next chapter, which is the last chapter in the book of Micah, Micah gives a description of our God. And I think it's so important and so worthy of, of using to place our courtroom scene into context that I've printed it in your bulletin. If you turn to the back page of your bulletin, here we go with that Baptist thing again. On the back, the very back of your bulletin, at the very top, you'll see verses 18 and 19 of chapter 7. Here Micah concludes his prophecy by describing this God who wants our love. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgressions? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us, you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our inequities into the depths of the sea. This is the God. This is the God who wants our love, nothing more but nothing less. And when you put all of this, you put that description of this God together with, with the courtroom scene where we have, where we have God pleading for Israel's return to a right relationship, what it tells us is this, folks. It is never too late for us to get into that right relationship with God. It is never too late. 
Amen.